Good evening, and welcome to the Legal Eagle Review, an informative and thought-provoking weekly show covering legal issues affecting everyday people. We know that there are many things you could be doing with your time, and we appreciate your decision to share this time with us. I'm Irving Joyner. And I'm April Dawson. We're law professors at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and we're your co-hosts. The Legal Eagle Review is sponsored by the NCCU School of Law. We thank you for joining us this evening. The first Monday in October is the official start of each U.S. Supreme Court term. This year, the 2021-22 Supreme Court term and the first oral arguments begin on Monday, October the 4th. It should be noted that the court will resume in-person arguments on that day. This will be the second court term with a conservative six-justice majority since the passing of Ruth Bader Ginsburg on September 18, 2020, and the appointment of Amy Coney Barrett sworn in less than six weeks later and while ballots were still being cast in the 2020 November general election. In a recent past episode, we discussed the significant cases decided by the court during this last term, And if you missed that show, you can find it and all previous episodes on the Legal Eagle Review podcast. On this show, we're going to continue our discussion of the court and preview two major cases that will be decided by the court this term. Joining us for this discussion are attorney Susanna Birdsong. She is the Director of Public Affairs for the North Carolina Planned Parenthood Association and Professor Don Corbett, Constitutional Law Professor at NCCU School of Law. Thank you both for joining us this evening. So let's first talk about the current makeup of the court. So when Anthony Kennedy was on the court, many people called the court the Kennedy Court because Kennedy was the swing justice and was the deciding vote in the vast majority of 5-4 decisions. But since his retirement three years ago, the composition of the court has changed in significant ways. Can you share your observations on the resulting dynamics of the court and how this affects the activity of the court going forward? And Attorney Birdsong, let's start with you. Great. Um, It's so good to be with y'all. Thanks for having me back. Um, You know, I think that the shifting dynamics of the court, even just in the last year, are pretty um, stark. You know, with the, as you mentioned, with the death of um, Justice Ginsburg and the appointment and um, confirmation of uh, Amy Coney Barrett to the court. there is, there has been sort of a seismic shift. Um, And so, you know, for a brief and shining moment after Justice Kennedy retired, it was the Roberts court (laughs) and he's the chief justice. And I'm sure that that was very appealing to him. Um, He was often, you know, the the swing vote, the fifth vote um, on a lot of cases. and that was true on, you know, the most recent abortion case that the court took up um, in June medical uh, last term. And so with uh, Justice Barrett's seating, though, the court is shifting further to the right. And I mean, I think that 
um, we are all waiting and watching closely to see what that means for the cases that they will hear this term and beyond. Professor Corbett, can you add to that? And can you also talk about how the change in the composition of the court also affects cases that the court will hear and how the court's docket will shape the court's jurisprudence? Sure, sure. I can give it a shot. And thank you for for inviting me. I I, I think that to echo what uh, Attorney Burtz, <clears throat> Attorney Burtz I said, uh, one of the shrewdest moves I thought that Trump made during the 2016 campaign was to publicly talk about the type of judges that he would appoint to the bench. And I think it turned out to be the kind of litmus test that a significant faction of the Republican Party wanted to hear. And it allowed some of them uh, to basically hold their nose and vote for him or not hold their nose and vote for him. But whatever the case was, it made him a more palatable candidate for people who might have struggled with that otherwise. So as luck or misfortune, depending on your perspective, would have it, he was able to elevate three judges to the bench during his four years. Now, it didn't quite work out the way he thought, because I think he believed, he's, he seems to be a very transactional dude, and he, I think he believed that if he lost the election, then his quote-unquote judges would rescue him at the last minute and and, and restore him to the, to, uh, to the presidency. But he lost, and Nonetheless, he still really delivered for one issue voters who really primarily cared about Roe. So we'll see if that comes to fruition in this particular term. Uh, I think, though, that you did mention the six to three majority and, and the, the, the Roberts court that people perceived was in place beforehand. But it seems like it to me, it really hasn't played out that way in terms of this first term. It looks like it's almost really more of a three, three, three split as opposed to a six, three split. With, with Kagan and Sotomayor and Breyer being on one side of the fence and on the complete other side of the fence, there's Thomas, Alito, and, and Gorsuch. And then somewhere in the middle, probably Roberts, Kavanaugh, and, and Amy Coney Barrett. Now, if that's your middle, then obviously that's going to be a problem for some people. But, but that, it does look like that's kind of where things are split, where that middle three look more in the way of incrementalists as opposed to... Uh, the Thomas Alito Gorsuch branch that really wants to kind of tear a lot of things up and start over. In terms of the the docket itself, I think what you're going to see is similar to the cases we'll talk about today. There are some cases that I think the conservative wing of the court has wanted to get before the court, but just didn't have the votes to be able to do it. I think that's true of the gun rights case we'll talk about a little bit later. So I think what you're going to see is more of the type of cases that that are important to, I hate to say it, but but the, the platform of the Republican Party that may find more in the way of traction with this particular court. And that would have to give people on the other side of the fence a lot of pause. But we'll see. Hopefully I'm wrong about that, but, but we'll see how it goes. You know, when, when I was in law school, which wasn't that long ago, uh, there was this, uh, this notion and this idea presented that in constitutional interpretation, uh, precedent, uh, star decisive, and past decisions from the court meant, meant a lot. And it guided future decisions by the court in order to establish some stability in the law, some, uh, the, some consistency in, uh, in opinion such that people are able to predict 
the direction that the court is going to go. Uh, with these new splits that you've just uh, described, are we to accept the notion that star decisis, past precedents now, have uh, little or reduced meaning in the uh, interpretation of, uh, of the Constitution? I'll take a stab at it, Professor Joyner. I think that it depends on which judge you're talking to and on which day. Uh, in the, and I'll have to defer to Attorney Birdsong about this. I want to make sure that I get it right. But it seems like in the most recent case that we had go up about abortion regulations, Justice Roberts, while not necessarily weighing in on the substance of the law, sided with what's known as the liberal wing of the court. Uh, and his premise was that we've already decided this, we've already talked about it, we've already settled it because the case was so similar to a case that the court uh, had dealt with a couple of years before that. Uh, however, I do think that you have some justices, I, I would start with Justice Thomas and then go to Justice Alito, we'll have to see where Coney Barrett is, although some of her writings would suggest that uh, they are completely comfortable with the idea of overturning long-standing court traditions if they feel like uh, those decisions that have historically created that stare decisis doctrine were, uh, quote unquote, uh, irrevocably wrong. Uh, and I think you see that in Justice Thomas' writings with regard to the Commerce Clause, and you may see it all the way up to uh, cases like Roe v. Wade here in, in the future as we push forward. Yeah, I would agree with that um, wholeheartedly. And I think that uh, the abortion cases that you referenced, right, Chief Justice Roberts was on the other side in the 2016 case, Whole Women's Health versus Hellerstedt. Um, he voted, he would have voted to uphold um, the regulatory scheme that Texas had in place that was, uh, that had shut down over half of the clinics in that state. Um, but when that scheme, basically the exact same scheme, came back before the court out of Louisiana this time last term, he, you know, sided with stare decisis, with precedent, and said, this is settled. We decided this issue um, just, you know, four years ago. And I think he has this um, desire to uphold the, you know, um, stability of the court, to hold the court out as an apolitical body. Um, he really cares about, you know, people's confidence in the court. And so, um, you know, sticking to prior decisions and making sure that folks see a path forward from where the court has been um, is important to him. Um, and I think we will see exactly what Professor Corbett said, what happens with this shifting dynamic on the court term. And Attorney Birdsong, you, you raise the next question that I had kind of teed up about the of whether the court is apolitical or nonpartisan. And there have been a couple of justices recently who have made public statements. So you have Thomas who's saying that the court is nonpartisan, it's not political. Barrett saying the same thing. And even Justice Breyer, who has just recently published a book uh, supporting that premise. So do you agree with that sentiment that the court is um, an apolitical or nonpartisan institution? New Birdsong, we'll start with you. I agree that it should be. Uh, I want so much for it to be, and I'm an eternal optimist, and I believe that it potentially can be again. 
but I think to the extent that it ever was um, over the course of our nation's history, it is not viewed as apolitical now. And that certainly matters. The public perception that justices on the court are either liberal or conservative. The perception that, you know, what they do, how they decide is based on sort of the, their personal political ideology and their writings before they became a justice. I think that that is pervasive. And then we've had recent real political fights over their confirmation hearings, which um, you know certainly doesn't help the court to maintain any premise um, of uh, of being apolitical. And you know that is as recent as, as you mentioned at the top of the show, Amy Coney Barrett's. Um, confirmation hearing last year, which happened just days before the presidential election, when people were already casting their ballots for president. And this, you know, and so that vote was strictly along party lines in the Senate, 52 to 48. And there was a lot of animosity and rancor around the fact that she was even being, we were even considering her confirmation that close to an election, when in the previous election cycle, when Justice Scalia died several months before the 2016 presidential election, the Republican majority in the Senate blocked you know, any confirmation hearing, any ability for Merrick Garland, who was President Obama's nominee at the time to replace Justice Scalia, um, any possibility of his confirmation hearing because it was too close to an election, still months away from November. And so I think just the, the fact that you have these two things happening within a relatively short amount of time of each other, just four years apart, really leads the public to believe, how can this not be just completely about politics? You know, the Senate puts in place one set of rules for one confirmation process, and then they don't follow that set of rules for another. And how can the person who is then confirmed in this very partisan, very political process not bring politics to the bench? Mm -hmm. And Professor Corbett, has the court ever been nonpartisan or apolitical and as an institution comprised of, of people who have very strong political views and opinions, can the Supreme Court ever be apolitical? I don't think so. I mean, I, I believe they believe that. I believe they are earnest in their belief that that's the case. But I think you only have to look. There's, there's a couple of things that, that come to mind. Uh, first, I think, and, and, and I hope that this will answer the question in the way you need me to, but I think the first problem is the legislature has not really been helpful. I think that they have not been able to pass meaningful laws in areas like immigration and, and how the breadth of our telecommunications laws and, and expansion of voting rights, et cetera. So you allow that window for the court to come in and make some of those calls, which invariably are going to have political ramifications, right? And then... I think as, as Attorney Bertson just referenced, the process by which judges are appointed to the bench has been deeply enmeshed in politics. So now it just looks like another version of the whole my side versus your side thing all over again without regard to really the substance of the person's qualifications or their suitability for the court. And, and as I think you referenced, it's the court is aware of this. There are There's public polling that shows the court in lower standing than it's been in quite some time. So you had three judges out this summer talking about the lack of partisanship on the bench. But even then, you have to look at the context for that. Like Amy Coney Barrett 
made these statements and said, we're here to show that, that, or my job is to prove to you that we are not a bunch of partisan hacks, but yet where did she do it? She did it at a function with Mitch McConnell in Kentucky and in a building, I think it was named for him. So uh, Mitch McConnell wakes up thinking about how he can be more partisan during the course of the day. So, so the, when the words are completely misaligned with the context like that, then it makes people more cynical about the process and, and lets, leads them to believe that the court is just like all of our other political institutions. And I think it goes to, it, it contributes to this larger societal mistrust of institutions generally that I think is going on. And it just adds the Supreme Court to that list. All right, you're listening to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. And we've been talking this hour about the U.S. Supreme Court, the term that will begin tomorrow, if you're listening on Sunday. And we have here in our Zoom studio, attorney Susanna Birdsong. She is the Director of Public Affairs for the North Carolina Planned Parenthood Association and Professor Don Corbett, Constitutional Law Professor at NCCU School of Law. We're gonna take a quick break. We hope you stay with us. We'll be right back. Hello, my name is Brittany Burks and I'm currently a 2L at the North Carolina Central University School of Law. This week, we are speaking on a few cases up for review by the Supreme Court of the United States. One of the cases is regarding abortion. Abortion has been a very controversial topic since the court's decision in Roe v. Wade. In 1969, Norma McCarvey, known as her alias Jane Roe in all court documents, became pregnant with her third child and wanted to have an abortion. In Texas at the time, abortions were prohibited unless it was to save the woman's life. She was referred to attorneys who filed a case on her behalf against the local district attorney, Henry Wade, in federal district court. Attorneys for Roe argued that the Texas abortion laws were unconstitutional. The district court agreed, and the case was decided in Roe's favor. Texas appealed this decision to the Supreme Court of the United States. The Supreme Court handed down their decision on January 22, 1973, affirming the lower court's decision that it is a woman's 14th Amendment right to choose to have an abortion. Therefore, the Texas abortion laws are unconstitutional. My name is Brittany Burks with the Legal Eagle Review. Thank you for listening. Okay, we're back on the uh, Legal Legal Review. Thank you so very much for staying with us uh, this evening as we uh, continue our conversation about the uh, U.S. Supreme Court and what we can expect from that court uh, going forward. Uh, We have as our uh, expert guest uh, for uh, this discussion, uh, Attorney Susanna Birdsong, who is the uh, Director of Public Affairs for the North Carolina Planned Parenthood Association and uh, Professor uh, Don Corbett, who is a con- constitutional law professor at uh, NCCU uh, School of uh, Law. We uh, were talking about what uh, some considers now as the instability of the court and the drifting toward a uh, partisan divide uh, that uh, many people 
uh, uh, concerned about uh, with this uh, 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 with this court. Um, is the Constitution in danger of being overtaken by these uh, conservative right-wing partisan uh, sentiments and, uh, and principles that uh, seemingly are emerging throughout the country? So Professor Corbett, you wanna start us? I can try. I, there's, there's obviously been a lot of discussion about that since the, the 2020 election, there's been a ton of the of discussion about whether that was a legitimate election or not. I saw something the other day that said nearly eight Republicans out of 10 believe that Biden is an illegitimate president. And you, what you've seen since then is maneuvering on the part of local and state officials uh, to basically either wrest power away from election officials in the event that you have another close call uh, or to wrest power away from uh, the governor and to restrict uh, voting rights and access in, in all kinds of ways. So it makes you wonder whether this is kind of in preparation for pre-litigation for either 22 or 24, or it's just a knee-jerk response to an undesirable outcome. Uh, it does appear to me, though, that you do have one of our two major parties that is becoming increasingly comfortable with the idea of less democracy instead of more. And, and I think that has to give people pause. Now, whether we actually kind of reset the parameters to the way things were prior to Donald Trump in the next election or two, uh, that could happen. That's not an impossible thought, but it also could happen that we're now sliding down the slope of, you know, maybe this democracy is not as stable as we thought it was. And it's just too early to tell for me right now. Yeah, I think that's right, that it's too early to tell, but there are some warning signs on the horizon for sure. And that, you know, it's alarming to me that when you think about the most recent presidential elections in our country's history, you know, we have a couple of examples um, now where the popular vote um, did not win the day. And the majority of people who voted in the election voted for a candidate who didn't ultimately um, win and wasn't the president. And that created four years of all sorts of different things, right? Um, or eight years, if you're thinking about George W. Bush. Um, but, you know, when you think, you know, Pre Professor Corbett referenced earlier that in Trump's four-year term, he appointed three justices to the Supreme Court and fundamentally shifted the court to the right. And we are just beginning, I think, to understand and see what that means in terms of the decisions that they're making on behalf of all of us when it comes to their interpretation of the constitution. And if eight and 10 Republicans see President Biden as an illegitimate president, I think you could say similar um, statistics about how a lot of folks felt about President Trump and the fact that he was um, not the winner of the popular vote by um, a handful of million votes. And he um, still was able to uh, ascend to the White House and nominate and have these justices confirmed to the Supreme Court in a way, you know, that sort of decision-making ability and his ability to do that 
And the fact that that now changes the court and the decisions that it will make for probably the next generation um, is uh, a hard pill to swallow. The court yeah. is going to consider in the next week or so, Dobbs versus uh, Jackson Women's Health Organization, a uh, case dealing with uh, abortion rights. So uh, Attorney Birdsong, let's start uh, with, with, with you. Uh, what is that case about? And uh, how do you expect that the uh, court is going to uh, uh, respond to this overriding notion of many that uh, Roe versus Wade ought to be uh, uh, overturned. Yeah, so that case, um, Jackson Women's Health Organization versus Dobbs is a case that's coming to the court out of Mississippi. And they'll hear oral arguments on December 1st, but we probably won't know the outcome of the case until um, the end of the term in June when they usually release their most explosive opinions. Um, this case deals with a law that the state of Mississippi passed back in 2018 that um, basically banned all abortions after 15 weeks of pregnancy. They had a couple of really narrow exceptions for in cases where there's a health emergency or in cases of um, some fetal anomalies. Uh, you could access abortion care after the 15th week of pregnancy. But other than that, um, if you lived in Mississippi and you were trying to access abortion care after 15 weeks, that was completely foreclosed to you. And so um, the one remaining abortion clinic in Mississippi, Jackson um, Women's Health Organization, filed a lawsuit. They're represented by the Center for Reproductive Rights. And, you know, they said this law just like every other law that every other state in this country has been trying to pass that to directly challenge Roe v. Wade is unconstitutional because it is a direct violation of the precedent that the court, the Supreme Court set in Roe versus Wade in the early 1970s and has been reaffirmed several times since then, um, which says that states can't ban abortion pre-viability, meaning, you know, usually viability is between 22 and 24 weeks of pregnancy. And here Mississippi is passing a law well before that mark. And um, so they brought this case and the federal district court agreed with the clinic and said, you're right, this is clearly um, unconstitutional and violates Roe v. Wade um, in the precedent that it set. And so they um, blocked the law from taking effect. The Fifth Circuit, which is not you know, has not been historically and currently um, any friend to uh, abortion advocates and abortion rights affirmed the district court's decision and said, you're right, this is a clear violation of Roe v. Wade um, and affirmed the law being blocked. And Mississippi then appealed to the Supreme Court and the justices considered that case, whether to take that case for a long time. They kept it on their sort of calendar for you know, discussion um, about whether to take the case for many months. They considered it 12 times in these meetings where they decide which cases to take. And eventually earlier this year um, said, you know what, we're gonna take it. 
and there was no sort of, you know, remark upon that by anyone. There weren't dissents on that cert grant or anything like that. Um, I think that would be pretty rare, pretty rare for folks to say something about it. But the fact that they took it is ominous because there was nothing, there was no reason for them to. There was no circuit split in the lower courts. You know, the lower courts that had heard the case were pretty uniformly agreed that um, that this law was unconstitutional. And so the question presented and the question that the court will consider is whether all pre-viability um, abortion bans are unconstitutional. And up until now, the answer has been yes. And so we will, we will see what this new court is going to do, but it is, um, it is an ominous place to start, especially given the makeup of the court that we just discussed earlier. And that, you know, raises a, a question about um, Justice Barrett, right? It wasn't until she joined the court that the court decided to hear this case. Uh, can you talk just a little bit about how the court, as far as procedurally, what's necessary for the court to uh, accept a case? Yeah. Um, and gosh, now I'm like, oh, what is the procedure? Um, is it <laughs> so is it, is it four, four justices? Four mm-hmm. justices have to agree to take the case. Um, yes. And so that happened in this case, but we don't know who the four are. And, you know, certainly I think that it matters that Amy Coney Barrett is on the court now and, um, you know, could it to Professor Corbett's sort of three, three and three division from earlier, I would assume, you know, if I were, if I were guessing about who voted to grant cert here, it would be Thomas Alito, Gorsuch, and perhaps Amy Coney Barrett was the fourth. And so, um, you have at least four wanting to take the case, presumably to reconsider the precedent of Roe and to, um, I think there are a million guesses as to do what with it, to chip away at it, to overturn it completely. Um, It'll be interesting. I mean, it'll be a lot more than interesting to see what they have five votes to do. Um, when it comes to actually deciding the case and if they are going to set a new precedent, what that looks like. Yeah, and, you know, your point about um, them actually taking the case, because had the court not taken the case, then the Fifth Circuit's affirmation of the lower court striking the law would, you know, maintain. And so the the Supreme Court did not have to take the case, um, and it being pretty ominous. Can you tie that into the Supreme Court's refusal to block this law out of Texas, which bans abortions after uh, even fewer than 15 weeks? Yeah, and I think, you know, this was an ominous um, cert grant before the Texas um, decision, non-decision, whatever you want to call it, um, brief opinion coming out of the court's shadow docket that allowed this six-week ban in Texas to take effect, and it remains in effect today. Um, It is even more uh, ominous now that that has happened. And so, you know, the court said, stressed in Justice Alito um, 
was the was the writer of their sort of the reason why they the author of why they um, allowed the Texas law to take effect or didn't intercede. Um, and he basically said, we're not saying anything about the precedent of Roe v. Wade. We're not weighing in on that. But this law in Texas is like procedurally complicated and the state doesn't have enforcement authority. And we're not even sure that um, abortion providers and others who aid or abet abortion are going to be impacted by it. And so we just need to like wait and see and let it play out. But we're not saying anything about Roe v. Wade or the constitutionality of abortion. Um, but by allowing the law to take effect, they did say something about Roe v. Wade and the importance of the precedent and their own sort of feelings about the precedent, because they basically allowed the state of Texas to make an end run around their own rule of law and um, stop abortions from happening, basically all abortions from happening in the state of Texas by creating a law that has this complicated procedure. And so, you know, when the when the Department of Justice, the US Department of Justice sued the state of Texas um, shortly after the law took effect. And that was basically their argument it was like, you can't, you can't as a state upend, you know, the law of the land. And the law of the land right now is that abortion is constitutional and if you are banning abortion pre-viability, that is in direct conflict with the law of the land. Um, and the Supreme Court could have easily said that in this, you know, when there was this emergency petition to them to block this Texas law from taking effect. There were many ways in which they could have said that. And they didn't. And I think that is telling and um dark foreshadowing for what we are going to see them do in this Mississippi case. Mm -hmm. Professor Corbett, did you have any thoughts you wanted to share on, on this case and what the future may hold in terms of how the Supreme Court uh, addresses this issue? Yeah, I've, I don't, I can't cover it any better than, than attorney Birdsong did. I think, uh, I do think it was at minimum negligent and at worst, intellectually dishonest to say that there's really nothing we can do about this because of the alleged procedural complications at the state level. I think that it'd be different if they hadn't already taken the Mississippi case, right? Because at that point now you can say, well, this is really different. This is really unique. We don't know what we're going to do with this. We need to see how this plays out. But because you had already taken the Mississippi case and because the folk in Mississippi had already specifically said in their brief, we want you to overturn Roe v. Wade. It seems to me that the sensible thing to do would have been is like, look, we're going to review the Mississippi case. At that point in time, we will review the Roe v. Wade decision. And we're just going to put all of these laws that are in the hopper or recently passed on pause until we can do that particular thing. And, and to fail to do that, uh, as was just stated, I think it may tell you all you need to know about what this may look like at the end of that process. In, in light of, well, Roe versus Wade has been described as a uh, woman's right to choose case. Uh, yet there's been a steady campaign since that, uh, that decision led largely by women to overturn uh, Roe versus Wade. What does that say about 
public sentiment regarding uh, this issue of, uh, of abortion. But I see that we, we're gonna have to take our break right now. Uh, want you to uh, stay with us. We, we, we're gonna let uh, Attorney Birdsong and Professor Corbett kind of think uh, about the answer to that uh, question and we will return shortly uh, to continue uh, that uh, this uh, very important uh, discussion about the uh, Supreme Court and uh, where it's going during the 21-22 uh, session. We'll be right back. Hello, my name is Brittany Burks, and I am currently a 2L at the North Carolina Central University School of Law. And this is your community spotlight. The North Carolina Central University School of Law offers four certificate programs. Upon completion of the specified requirements, law students may earn a certificate in civil rights and constitutional law, dispute resolution, tax law, or justice in the practice of law. As a part of the Eagle Promise, NCCU School of Law offers our students four outcomes upon graduation. Completing a degree program on time, becoming socially and globally engaged, proving leadership, and graduating market ready. More information about any legal program is at 919-530-6610. My name is Brittany Burks with the Legal Eagle Review. Thank you for listening. Okay, we're back on the Legal Legal Review. We are continuing our discussions about the uh, U.S. Supreme Court and uh, a couple of cases that it has on its uh, docket uh, for early on uh, this session. Uh, attorney Susanna uh, Birdsong uh, is with the uh, Planned Parenthood uh, Association. Donald Corbett, professor at North Carolina Central University uh, School of Law, uh, discussing uh, these uh, cases. And when we uh, uh, took our break, uh, we were asking about uh, the uh, public sentiment uh, with respect to the uh, woman's right to choose and the uh, continuing viability of Roe versus uh, Wade. Uh, so let's uh, start uh, with uh, Attorney Birdsong uh, on a response. Thanks for that question. Um, so public perception is important and um, public opinion and perception of the ability to continue to control your own body um, is you know, there is an people's um, appreciation for and respect for Roe versus Wade and the precedent that it set, the right to choose um, whether and when to become a parent is something that, you know, over seven out of 10 Americans support, over seven out of 10 North Carolinians support. Um, public opinion has consistently over time remained at about that level that you know, we shouldn't be a government of telling people uh, what they can and can't do when it comes to their own personal health decisions that impact only them and their families. And that's why, you know, the court established 
the right to abortion in this line of privacy cases in the 19, early 1970s, late 1960s, early 1970s. And this was, this was one of those privacy rights that the court said, this is you know, a fundamental right that we hold as Americans. And they set this precedent. It's a precedent that's been upheld several times over the last almost 50 years. And it's something that the majority of Americans continue to support. So there's another case that's going to be by the Supreme Court this term that relates to constitutional rights, specifically the Second Amendment. Now, the Supreme Court um, a decade plus ago decided the D.C. v. Heller case. Um, Professor Corbett, can you talk about the New York State Rifle and Pistol the Bruin case, and in talking about the case, just share kind of the history of the court's Second Amendment jurisprudence? Sure, sure. So for, for people who are uninitiated, this, the Second Amendment of the Constitution essentially protects your right, one's right to bear arms. Uh, but the issue with the Second Amendment has always been, okay, well, how far exactly does that right extend? And, and if you have that right, then how can governments regulate gun ownership in a constitutional manner? And, and we, as you mentioned, the last word from the court about this really came, I want to say 2008, 2009, in the Heller case you mentioned. And there the court said that the Second Amendment protected an individual's right to own a handgun for purposes of self-defense in his or her or their home. Now, clearly that's a holding in support of Second Amendment rights, but it was really, it's still a relatively narrow holding in the sense that it really only covered handguns and handguns in one's home. Uh, now, there was a sister decision that came down in 2010 uh, uh, concerning a law in Chicago, but since then, we've not had a word from the court about Second Amendment rights. Now, I think they had some cases that were on their potential docket for 2020, but they couldn't find the four justices uh, to, to get on board to review those particular gun regulations. So this case is the first one to get up there in a minute. So uh, the New York law that's in question allows folk to carry concealed weapons, but they have to have a permit to do it. And, and it denies permits to people who are unable to convince the state that they have what the law calls proper cause to carry a firearm in a concealed manner. So you had two petitioners here who applied for this permit, but they were denied. And they're alleging that the denial violates their Second Amendment rights. Now, the lower courts dismissed the case, uh, but the court accepted the petitioner's request for review. So uh, the facts of the case are not super complex, obviously, but there are very, very important questions that are probably going to be answered here. Uh, for instance, you know, does the Second Amendment protect your right to carry a weapon outside your home? You know, does the Second Amendment protect your right to carry a concealed weapon? You know, and, and if so, for what purpose? So if the answer to those questions is yes, then in the future, I think the next thing, and hopefully the court will address this in this opinion, is what kind of standard is going to be used to assess the constitutionality of future gun restrictions by the government? Obviously, we have uh, a huge problem with gun violence in the country. It's probably been exacerbated somewhat by the, by the financial and psychological stress of the pandemic. So I think you need to know if you're a city or a state or the federal government and you want to regulate gun ownership, presumably under the idea that it's going to potentially reduce gun violence, well, what kind of standard 
do you have to meet in order for it to be constitutional? Uh, are you going to get a relatively lenient standard? And that, that gives you a lot of latitude to fashion the kind of laws that you want? Or are you going to get a stricter standard that's going to make it more difficult to regulate gun ownership and gun possession generally? So, so that's really kind of the long and the short of it. I, I think that the, we've referenced Justice Thomas before. Uh, and in this particular matter, he has been eager for the court to take up a Second Amendment case. He believes that the court has ignored that particular right under the Constitution in favor of several other rights. So clearly he got people to go along with him in accepting this case. Uh, I think that there is probably some enthusiasm on the court to expand the rights of gun ownership. But the question just is, you know, where is the line? And, and then again, how do you go about regulating it if you're a city or a state with, with palpable gun violence? But isn't New York a kind of an outlier on this uh, issue since... Uh... Okay, I think the answer to that is probably yes. <laughs> um, more, more states, uh, especially depending on where you, where you are geographically, uh, are actually expanding gun rights in ways that I think, I won't say weren't fathomable, but were difficult to fathom like 10 years ago. I think in Texas right now, you don't even have to have a permit. You don't have to have nothing. You just can walk around with your guns, you know, without, without ramification or, you know, or, or punishment, either on a civil or criminal side. So, so I think Professor Joyner is right in the sense that they, uh, that it's New York law is actually trying to be a little bit more careful than some of the other laws that have been passed. But again, not knowing this is, all this is really kind of newer territory for the court in terms of its recent jurisprudence. So we just kind of have to see uh, how they feel about first concealed weapons specifically. And then that'll tell us a lot, I think, about how they feel about gun ownership and gun rights uh, generally. Yeah, and the interesting thing about uh, this case, in compared to DCV Heller, there was a lot of discussion and briefing and arguments related to the history of the Second Amendment. And um, so to your point about, well, how far does it expand? And as you noted, DC are focused on an individual right to own a gun in their home for self-defense. Um, so when we're thinking about the expansion of the Second Amendment, which, you know, in order for the court to rule in favor of those that are challenging the New York law. The Supreme Court will have to affirmatively expand the right of the Second Amendment beyond where we are right now. Um, what are your thoughts about how the Supreme Court, and I'm asking you to kind of look at the, the tea leaves, um, but what are your thoughts about how the court might rule this case given the court's interpretation of the history in D.C. Heller? My guess is that the law will be struck down as unconstitutional. Uh, and, and I believe that will be the case because, the, and I don't want to get too deep in the weeds with regard to some of the things that we're, we're talking about, but I, I really strongly believe that the, the premise of what it means, what the Second Amendment means, has shifted considerably as the issue of guns has become a more prominent feature in our current culture wars. You know, we've really, for quite some time, been arguing really since the end of the Civil War about what kind of country we're gonna be. And, and I think that guns have, in some ways, become some, uh, symbolic of the concept of freedom in the United States for a whole lot of people. And I think that that thought resonates with, with 
many members of the court. So I think you're going to have at least five votes to say, no, this law is unconstitutional. And you may get as many as six or seven, uh, just depending upon how narrow the law. Well, let me back up. I don't know that you're ever going to get Breyer or Kagan or Sotomayor to say that this is problematic. So I think you're going to definitely get five and maybe six. And then the question just is, for that sixth vote, how broad are you stating it? How widely are you allowing people to uh, carry this hand? And, I, and I'm thinking about Justice Roberts in particular, like who, who seems to be more of an incrementalist about this thing. I think that he is likely to, to side with the majority here, but I think how aggressively and how affirmatively he does that is going to depend on the breadth of the opinion that Justice Thomas will write. <laughs> so, so we'll see how it goes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you know, to your point about, um, you know, to Roberts, to the extent he wants to um, exercise some leadership on the court, right? He's he's not that center justice. He's not the swing justice. So to the extent he wants to exercise some leadership uh, when it comes to the opinions, can you talk a little bit about how opinions are assigned? And so if uh, Chief Justice Roberts in the you know, the minority, uh, what rights, if any, does he have to assign the opinion? And if he's with the majority, how him signing, assigning the opinion could play a role in the breadth or the narrow nature of an opinion? Essentially, what happens is the court will uh, meet in conference about these cases to discuss them, okay? And then each will, they'll kind of go around the table and each justice speaks about the matter. And then I believe that the chief justice actually cast the first vote. And then each justice in terms of, of, I want to say descending order seniority does so until the last justice votes, which would be in this particular situation, Amy Coney Barrett. So after the votes have been tallied, the chief justice or the most senior justice that's in the majority assigns a justice in the majority to write the opinion. Okay, so if the chief justice, like let's say Roberts is dissenting in a case, but Thomas has uh, is siding with the majority, then Thomas would assign a justice in the majority to write the opinion of the court because he's the senior justice. So that's 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 a lot of justices. I know I said that, but but that usually is the way it works. So so Thomas, if Thomas is in the majority for this particular case and Roberts is dissenting for whatever reason. He could, in theory, assign it to himself. I'll take care of it myself, you know, but but that is generally the way it works. It's a matter of seniority and 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 choice from that point forward. As our time is winding down, let me just throw to both of you, what do these decisions have to say about the uh, ongoing or emerging discussion to change the composition? of the uh, court and what uh, bearing will these decisions have on uh, on that campaign? So Attorney Birdsong, start with you on that one then. Sure, um, TBD of course, because we don't know how they're going to decide, but I think if they um, come down in these cases and in others in a way that is far out of step with majority opinion in the country, um, then I think you might hear louder calls for some sort of um, court packing or 
you know, thinking about adding justices to the Supreme Court to even out what we're seeing now, which isn't representative of um, of the people. And that, you know, can look a lot of different ways. I know a lot of different people have opinions about how it should look, but the Constitution is silent when it comes to the number of justices on the court. So there's nothing magical or special about the number nine. It's just the number that we've had um, for you know the last several decades. And uh, in the last several decades, in the last century, we have seen our country expand in all sorts of ways, including in population. Um, and so you think about how many more people we have to be represented by the decisions on this court now than we had the last time they um, added members to the court. And, you know, there's a reasonable argument to be made that it's time um, that we have a court that is more reflective, both in number and in sort of perspective of the people. Yes, I, I would I would echo that 100%. I, I think that the, it's not, well, I can't, it's hard, it's hard to disassociate the two, right? Because the issue for, for a lot of people may not necessarily be the result of an individual decision, but more so about the process in which how we elevate judges to the court. I think it's already been referenced uh, by attorney Birdsong about this duplicity with which what occurred when Mitch McConnell refused to give Merrick Garland a, or Merrick Garland a hearing when President Obama nominated him to the Supreme Court. He argued you can't do it in an election year. And then about two to three weeks before the 2020 election, unfortunately we lose uh, Justice Ginsburg, and with warp speed, they somehow figure out a way to get Amy Coney Barrett to the court. So I think there is lingering resentment about that concept. And I think the idea is, well, if you're going to refuse to play, quote unquote, fairly, then maybe what we should do is go to 13 justices on the court or go to 15 justices on the court. Because as was stated, there's nothing magical about the number nine. We've had nine since, I think, 1869. But initially, the court just had six justices when the national government was seated during Abraham Lincoln's presidency. I think we had 10 at various points. So there's nothing there's nothing magical about the number other than it's just what we've had for quite some time. But I think that the, the resentment over how justices are getting to the court and, and, and the content of how they are questioned and, and kind of, I guess, vetted by the Senate during the confirmation hearings I think when people feel a level of cynicism about that, then the argument is, well, we should do something about this. We should change it. And that goes, you know, even more fundamental than, than Attorney Birdsong's excellent point about just the fact that you have so many more people to represent now as opposed to because of the numbers of the population. And then, you know, more justices hopefully would give you an opportunity for a more diverse set of justices, not just in terms of socioeconomic background, but can we get somebody that maybe didn't go to an Ivy League school? You know, can we get somebody that maybe didn't clerk with us? You know, those those kinds of things that might lend a different perspective and create maybe a truer version of what, I mean, you can't obviously replicate uh, what's in the country with nine or 11 or 13 justices, but you could try a little harder. And, and we have not really done that with any degree of success, I don't think. All right, well, that's a, a great point to end on, um, made by both of you in terms of, uh, you know, the Supreme Court, an incredibly powerful institution, part of our government, um, has a big impact on the day-to-day -day lives of, of everyone in this country. And 
that there is certainly a need to have a more representative Supreme Court. So we'll continue, of course, to keep an eye on the court as an institution, the membership of the court, certainly the cases. Uh, We're going to go ahead and put it out right now that we know we're going to have you all back to talk about the court as the decisions come down. Uh, But we are out of time. We'd like to thank you, Attorney Susanna Birdsong, the Director of Public Affairs for the North Carolina North Carolina Planned Parenthood Association, and Professor Don Corbett, constitutional law professor at NCCU School of Law. We'd also like to thank you, our listening audience, for spending your Sunday evening with us. We hope you've enjoyed the show. If you have any comments or questions, please send us an email. You can reach us at legaleagle.review at nccu.edu. And if you ever miss this show on Sunday, you can find the show on our Legal Eagle Review podcast. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Until next week, stay informed, engaged, healthy, and safe.